All right, everybody, it is Sunday, which means VC Sunday School and This Week in Climate. What do we got on deck, Molly? Yes, uh, super interesting conversation in VC Sunday School. We're going to talk about Tam, Sam, and a new thing for both of us, SOM, S-O-M, and also just how to calculate the potential for growth in your startup in a way that's credible <laughs> to investors. One of the most important discussions we have as founders and investors when we work together and collaborate on business building is what is the opportunity and the opportunity manifests itself in the total addressable market. So we go very granular into examples of total addressable markets that were underestimated and then lazy TAMs that were overestimated and why you as the founder can do a better job and nail this discussion with investors and maybe 10x your chances of getting an investment. And then for investors, this is the secret to how Sequoia and Benchmark hit two of the biggest hits of all time. And I'm going to explain in detail how they found two of the most important companies of the last 20 years by looking at the potential TAM of these companies and getting it right. And then I am going to talk to a founder who got it right and who wants to pursue an even bigger market opportunity. I've got Brian Halligan, the co-founder of HubSpot, who is now the founder of a new climate tech investment fund called Propeller, focused specifically on the ocean. Brian is amazing. He's been on the pod before. So congratulations on your second appearance for two different acts in your career. HubSpot, what a great accomplishment. And now Propeller really focused on the ocean, which is such an important part of uh, the climate solutions, food, transportation. God, the, the ocean is such an important platform, and we'll get into that. It's going to be a great show again, Molly, I got to say. It's so great. It's so great. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by House of Macadamias is the next big health trend. Get 20% off your first purchase at houseofmacadamias.com slash twist by using code twist20. And Age Tech Collaborative. Startups, your go-to market team is waiting. Age Tech Collaborative's cutting-edge accelerator program connects you with investors, testbeds, like-minded innovators, and industry expertise. They're taking Age Tech to the next level. Join them at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. All right, Molly, it is Sunday. This is your time to shine. Mm-hmm. Tell Technically, us. Technically, it's kind of your time to shine because you're the, you're the Jedi Master here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, Padawan. Uh, yeah, but exactly. you're learning quickly and uh, you haven't lost any limbs yet. So tell us about... <laughs> yeah, well, when, when you when you get that company shut down and you're like, oh, oh I liked my left hand. Yeah. Uh, mm. yeah. Well, I guess the mechanical one will be okay. Um, what's on your mind in terms of learning how to be a venture capitalist and make great investments that change the world and return 50x to the fund? Uh, so, okay, this is an almost hilariously basic topic. Okay. But I think it's still a really interesting conversation. So obviously whenever you talk to a company you talk about tam total addressable market yep. easy easy peasy but recently i've had two companies have on their slides tam sam and som som which was a phrase i had never heard before so i looked yeah. it up of course sam serviceable available market aka the segment of the total tam targeted by your products and services within your geographical reach and then this new thing, SOM, serviceable, obtainable market, 
or the portion of the SAM that you can capture. And I wanted to talk to right. you about it because I just think that it's super interesting to talk about how to evaluate a company's potential reach, the most honest way to do it. And yeah, when TAM doesn't necessarily have to be huge, it can be really valuable. Like this whole kind of concept of what does the audience look like for yeah. a startup? Perfect. So let's take two quintessential uh, companies that exceeded their predictable TAM, uh, Airbnb and Uber. In the early days of Airbnb, they would look at a city like Paris, they say how many hotel rooms are there? Uh, how many nights do people stay in Paris in December, you can get that information, you'd say, okay, the TAM uh, for Airbnb in Paris is those hotel rooms, or those hotel nights. And when you look at a company like Uber, You'd say, okay, well, how many cabs are in the city easily obtainable? How many livery cars, also known as black cars, also known as car services, are available in that city? Seemed like a very good way to say, okay, well, then what is the serviceable available market to Uber or Airbnb? Okay, well, people who stay in five-star hotels for business travel are not staying in an Airbnb. And people who like, um, you know... Uh, who, who like having a rent a car, because they have a family and they have a bunch of luggage and they want to be able to travel when they get to the airport, they're going to do a rent a car. They're not going to do Ubers everywhere because they're going to the Grand Canyon. There's no Ubers available there. So we'll take those out, right? Uh, so and already there, you started to see examples of wait a second, that wasn't a cab. You just went over into rent a cars. Wait. Oh, so some rent a car people might actually do Ubers instead. You said the one going to the Grand Canyon wouldn't because they need the flexibility of having the car with them and there's no Ubers available. But maybe the person who's just spending 48 hours in San Francisco or 72 hours in Manhattan, they'll actually just use Uber. They're not going to rent a car. People go to a major city. They don't rent a car. It's completely impractical. That's the first thing they tell you when you come to San Francisco. Don't rent a car. 50 bucks to park every night. Accurate. 75 yeah. bucks to park every night. And you, you can't park it anywhere you go anyway. It's, you, it'll sit in the garage for three days and you just rack up this huge bill. Now in LA, it might be different. So... That's where the total addressable market sometimes exceeds it, and then exceeds what your expectation was. Now, sometimes people pick a TAM that's too broad. So if you were to look at Uber Eats and Postmates and DoorDash, you have the problem of, okay, all food, if you took all food that you, is eaten in the United States, supermarkets, fast food restaurants, delivery restaurants, grocery stores, fast casual convenience stores, you put all that together, that's not actually the market for DoorDash. DoorDash is not going to replace people going to restaurants, it's not going to replace people cooking at home, it's not going to replace fast food restaurants, we know that. So you have to have some intellectual honesty. And what I think they're trying to do here with Tam Sam Soam, and I actually haven't seen this in a deck. So it's interesting that it's happening is because I think so many people didn't buy the Tam, right? The case of Uber going up against rent-a-cars and public transportation and car ownership was not obvious. The only person who really saw that early was Bill Gurley. That's why he was able to make that investment and had the confidence. He said, I think the TAM is different than cabs. Yeah. I think the TAM includes these other things. So I'll stop there for a second. All right, listen. My favorite nut, macadamia. My favorite chocolate, dark. Now I have in my office nice box of macadamia bars and dark chocolate and i got dark chocolate covered macadamias a perfect snack for jcal i get a nice cup of black coffee and i treat myself 
and that company is House of Macadamia. The founders of this company, Brandon and Carmen, they've been listeners to this podcast. This Week in Startups for a long time, and they told me, I kid you not, that they started their company after they listened to This Week in Startups, and they read my book, Angel. They used the returns on their first angel investment, I kid you not, this is amazing, uh, to start this macadamia nut business. And uh, look, all nuts are not created equal. Here are the the health benefits of macadamias compared to peanuts, almonds, cashews, and walnuts. Macadamias are high in omega-7s, which have been linked to fat loss, which I need, right? And natural collagen, so you look nice. They also have more healthy fats and less carbs. Every product is vegan, keto, and paleo. Since you, you probably have two or three of those uh, on your list. Take it from me. I eat these macadamias all the time, every week. Two or three times a week I eat them. They're delicious. It's my little treat for myself. And uh, again... For me, it's, it's dark chocolate. For you, it might be one of the other flavors. They got spicy nuts. They got sweet nuts. They got everything. They got ones that are spicy and sweet. Here's what I want you to do. Go to houseofmacadamias.com slash twist right now. Get 20% off by using the code twist20. That's code twist20 for 20% off at houseofmacadamias.com slash twist. So I was impressed by the SOM calculation. We've talked on this show before, and you've talked a lot about this idea of bottom-up TAM. Like TAM is often presented in a way that's not honest like you're saying or not intellectually honest right it's hopeful it's like well yeah okay but you're not gonna you're not gonna sell this ev charger to every house in america that's just not gonna happen it's gonna be uh houses that you know can potentially install it don't have a tesla like whatever right you start to you start to slice and dice and then you think about how many people are actually going to buy that and you get to a more realistic tam so i liked this idea of the psalm because it feels intellectually honest but does it then risk thinking too small and like missing the potential for the airbnb breakout or uber breakout you know it's like a double now it's a double-edged sword this is one of the great things in venture capital and entrepreneurship uh this is a great thing for venture capitalists and entrepreneurs to have discussions about this is part of the art of investing in companies is you don't know what your tam is the market's going to tell you (laughs) over time because there's another rub here which I have looked at very often, which I call inducing a market to exist, right? There's a concept of induced traffic. You build an extra lane, you build a bridge. So when they built the Golden Gate Bridge, the number of people going from San Francisco up to Napa increased dramatically. Why? Well, because it was possible, you induce them to do so by the nature of building a bridge. If you start doing transatlantic flights, and people can go from Europe to the United States, by a plane as a you know in a couple of hours as opposed to on a boat for a couple of days you've induced that traffic airbnb and uber and doordash induced people to take longer more exotic uh and more trips so you take instead of going for three days you might go for five because you could afford it yeah you might go to a more exotic location because the reviews and you know this really cool looking house with great reviews in some weird place just seemed very appealing to you. And the price was great. So a lower price, uh, more optionality and a better product can induce traffic clear. I mean, I did not I used to go to the grocery store last night, right? uh, I needed some (laughs) things. And instead of using Instacart, I used Uber Eats for going to Safeway and I ordered some Haagen-Dazs ice cream, and some, you know, diet sodas and milk and other things we needed for the house came with it in, you know, under 90 minutes, maybe 60 minutes. And so that's the in, the inducing of a market to exist. So these are all great things to debate and discuss about your product. 
Is it going to take a subset of the TAM? Which TAM are we talking about? Are you talking about the TAM of all automobile sales? Well, or should you talk about all miles driven? And I think Uber Pool and Lyft Line, if you remember those products, not everybody does, but that was the, you know, I take a Lyft and I'm going to the airport on the way. I go five minutes out of my way to pick up Molly. Then we go another six minutes out of our way right. to pick up Nick. And then we go to the airport. And then that's three rides to the airport. If the total value of those rides was $150, we each, we, we actually put it down to 120. We each save 10 bucks. We each get inconvenienced by somewhere between 12, five or zero minutes, depending on which stop on the Uber or Lyft line. That was a brilliant product, requires network effects, could have increased the TAM of ride sharing massively. It didn't work. Where it rarely worked. And uh, who knows, you, maybe I did it one it time and it was almost a disaster. It was the worst ride to the airport of my life. It, you know, Don't I do it in I, New York City. Separate. Well, I did it. I did it leaving SFO, going to San Francisco every single time for like a month or two. Uh, and I did it like five times. Three out of the five times it didn't pick up a second person. The two times it did, uh, it was a little annoying. And I realized I saved five or 10 bucks and I got inconvenienced by like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. It wasn't worth it for me. Yeah. Um, but I, I felt like I should try it because I was an investor and I felt like um, I should do it because it's better for the environment. That's how I felt too. I was like, well, it's really, it's more sustainable. And then I was like, nope. <laughs> but, you know, then people were, people are weird. And so yes, I just, and they're sitting the on top seat. of you. I was like, no, no, no. no I would like I went right to the front seat. Yeah, I was like, I would, front seat I would rather only. have an Escalade. Well, by the time mine, I was the second pickup. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, just I, give I, me the... I, I, go, I go front seat, put the headphones in, put the sunglasses on. I carry a baseball cap now if I want to go incognito because, you know, selfies. And so I'll put the baseball cap on, the sunglasses on, and the air pieces, AirPods on, and I don't get recognized. I take it off, I get recognized, which is great. I love to take a selfie. There's times when I'm on a phone call, I don't. Um, anyway, that's Tam. So That's how you think about Tam. About talk about the idea of bottom up Tam and then how to sniff out because because the yeah. art can be tricky, right? There's also there's the yeah. art of of course a company is going to tell you, well, we think we can capture all of this. I, I just talked to a company recently that was like, oh yeah, we can capture market if we do this and this, and I'm like, yes, you definitely. I see what you're saying, and also don't. To what extent do I need to evaluate you based on, especially at our stage, based on the thing you actually have right now? So. You can look at what is reality today. Uh, so, and how are people solving the problem today? So if somebody says, you know, we are going to do a scooter company, like Bird or Lime. Okay. And they say, yeah, the number of trips is, uh, you know, all the Ubers and Lyfts and cab rides that are under a mile. You can reasonably do any 20 block journey on these devices. So anything under a mile, which is 60% of the rides. And I said, okay, however, how many days a year is it rainy or cold? How many rainy or cold days are there? Okay, that's 20%. So you take out 20% for that number. So let's just say the number of rides was a million uh, in this category in, you know, Los Angeles. Okay, so we take out, now we're down to 800,000. Okay, and uh, let's say uh, people of a certain age are not interested in this. Okay, what percentage of the rides? Oh, they're half the rides? Okay, now we're down to 400,000. Okay. Uh, and um, let's say people who are, uh, you know, maybe of a certain body type, they don't want to be on it, or business people. You know, maybe if you were obese, you wouldn't want to be on one of these things. Or have so a maybe disability. If you, 
like or a disability sure right? literally can't oh. mm -hmm. literally okay sure so maybe that's five percent literally can't and then mm -hmm. maybe obese is a third of the country and don't you know care to be doing physical activity ride a uh, a city bike or do a lime scooter it's just too physically stressing for a person um they don't want to show up sweating or whatever all right so now whatever we just off the top of our heads we narrowed a million down to two hundred thousand. right that's where the intellectual honesty of the exercise comes in what an entrepreneur would like to do is show you in some cases an intellectually dishonest or an intellectually lazy more likely or uh, a, a radically optimistic or yes. desperate founder any of those could apply uh -huh. Uh -huh. could be desperate could be hopeful could be delusional could be whatever yeah it could be sloppy sloppy lazy would probably be the largest category they're not thinking these things through because they're doing one company and we are evaluating fifteen thousand per year as a company so we have a different level of rigor and it's important to realize that right we're going to be more rigorous than they are and that's our job yeah. so if you're a founder listening to this you got to be rigorous you got to put yourself on the other side of the table that whole steel manning idea where you do the other person's job like do our job do you buy the number and what can you take out of the tam even a bottom-up tam so what i like to do is say who have you sold the product to okay we make enterprise software for dentists you just track all their patients great how many dental offices are there in the United States? There's 30,000. Great. Okay. Now, how many, uh, uh, how many of those have you sold into now? We have 20. Tell me about those 20. Oh, yeah. They're all dental offices that have four or five dentists in them uh, and have over this number of patients. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't work for a single or a double dentist. Why? They're like, yeah, they kind of, they don't need it because they've only got 250 customers. They keep them in a Google Excel or whatever. Like it's just, it's easier for them to just do it manually. They, they have the folders right behind them that you see when you go there. Okay, great. Of the 30,000 dentist office, how many are solo? Oh, half are solo. So, okay, now we're talking about 15,000. So I'm looking at who's already using the product, why they say yes. So this is where go-to market and the idea customer profile come into play. You'd explain the TAM. Now you explain the idea customer profile and we can figure that out. You'd be like Salesforce saying, hey, we sell CRM and sales. How many salespeople are, on, are there in the United States? Oh, there's 25 million. Okay, how many of them work behind a desk at a computer? Oh, well, 5 million. Well, what, what, who are the other 20,000? Oh, they're used car salesmen. They're on a lot. Oh, they're salespeople right. at retail. So they, they just got the 25 million salespeople and they never looked at what Gartner group or whatever group made that number and did that report. They included retail in that report. They included car salesmen. They included, you know, people selling door-to-door -door encyclopedias, whatever the number is. Okay, so it's really 5 million. Okay, of those, how many of them sell more than $500,000 a year in product because if you sell under 500,000 a year in product you're not spending you know $5,000 installing this maintaining it etc so you can really start to look at totally where did this number come from that's why I prefer bottom up bottom right. up is okay you sell to dentists and you sell specifically to author orthodontists how many orthodontists are there in the United States great what cities are they in? Great. And then well, who's the ideal customer profile? What's your go-to market plan? And all of a sudden you can eliminate groups, et cetera. Ironically, I think that gets you to some. I think that gets you to this new thing, this serviceable, obtainable market. I like having founders. This is my note to you because I think I've now seen this twice, but definitely once. I like this Tam Sam Som thing because it tells me who you think you can really get immediately. But it also gives me the larger universe of possibility. Yes. I'm into it. Tam, Sam, Sam, do yeah. it. Have, right? Don't be lazy with this slide. There is a, 
and look at this slide right. in your deck. Look at this discussion. Be specific. Yeah, be really specific and do bottom up, do, you know, top down. Don't find one number and say, I'm going to get 5% of it. You're going to look like somebody from like the peak height of the market who doesn't understand their market. You, you want this discussion to show your deep understanding of the market so that you, when you saw Molly and I going back with these examples, know more than us about your market and you're educating us. When we're in meetings, you'll have somebody educating you on the market, explaining to you the nuances of it, who would be perfect for your product, who is not going to do buy your product. Those are important discussions to have. And the more intellectually honest, the more rigorous, the more thoughtful you are in a TAM discussion, the more likely you are to get investment. Yeah, because the more you try to massage the data, the less likely you are to get an investment. And as a VC, the more rigorous you are about TAM and thoughtful, the greater the chances of like Bill Gurley, or the Airbnb investors, you're going to find an outlier. That's why Sequoia figured it out for Airbnb. And that's why Benchmark and Bill Gurley figured it out for Uber. I so actually good. didn't make that calculation. I didn't make a TAM calculation. I made a bet on my friend right. and on the product. Hey, everybody. It's time for a special interview with an old friend of mine, Rick Robinson. He is the GM of Age Tech Collaborative, which is brought to you by our friends at AARP which I think, Rick, correct me if I'm not, at 52 as of last week, am I able to be an AARP now? You are You are welcome to join. Oh, man, you and I got old. Yes. What happened? <laughs> this is amazing. You guys are really excited uh, about engaging the startup community in building technology for folks who are getting up there in age. Yeah, it's really exciting for us developing the Age Tech Collaborative to try to put a focus on what we call Age Tech. Mm. And you might be wondering, like, what is Age Tech? Well... Yeah. It's, uh, it's the intersection of longevity and technology, really. These are health tech companies. These are fintech companies. These are wellness companies. Essentially, it's going to be almost every company because the market, 50 plus, is becoming so enormous that they can't be ignored. Mm. And then you've got a lot of people who are supporting that market who can yeah. be any age. It's kind of a white space because not a lot of product developers and marketers and startups and investors have put a lot of focus on this, but it's huge and it's growing. In fact, it's around eight and a half trillion dollars in terms of eco economic value in the US right now. All right, thanks, Rick. When you're selling into the 50 plus market, having a relationship with AARP gives you a bunch of credibility, of course. In the meantime, you can go learn more about the Age Tech Collaborative at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. And join us later in the program and you hear more about the Age Tech Collaborative and how they help innovative startups succeed. All right, fascinating. We have uh, today's This Week in Climate Startups is Ooh. a founder... But a founder who has moved on to VC, I spoke to Brian Halligan, co-founder of HubSpot. Oh, yes. Who, yep, exactly. He was actually on episode 997 back in November 2019. He was the CEO of HubSpot for 15 years, What's stepped doing down now? as CEO and is still chairperson in August 21 to do the hot new thing, pivot mm. to climate tech. Love it. But he did a bottom-up TAM to try to figure out his impact, basically, how he could have the greatest impact and where he thought his, his attention and time should go. And he actually started a fund, um, decided and to where start. is that fund going to focus? It is. This is what's so fascinating. Last, you know, we talked about the wildfire tech fund. This one is all about ocean tech. It's a fund called propeller. And it recently announced a $100 million raise in partnership with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and is the first investment fund ever solely dedicated to improving the quality of the oceans, which is 
you know, compared to wildfire tech, a big, uh, wide open, fascinating opportunity. I like it. And you know, I'm obsessed with this. Like, this is one of those things I think in 10 years, we're going to look back and be like, that's actually where a lot of the climate solutions really were. It's a huge carbon sink. There's a bunch of food in there. Like there's all this algae and vegetable life. And it's super interesting. Um, and also just kind of kind of fascinating to see a, t- a, a founder do this like really, really intentional decision making process and determine like, this is where I can have the most impact. There's so much opportunity in the ocean. There's so much bounty in the ocean. Yep. And it's something, well, let's be honest, humanity has abused and been callous totally. and not been thoughtful about. So you take those two things together, this huge opportunity and the fact that we've been very cavalier, thoughtless, and, you know, cruel to the ocean, man, if we could align those things a little bit better and stop dumping stuff in the ocean, cleaning it up, making it more sustainable, more bounty would come from it. This makes exactly. total sense to me. What a great mission. Yeah, it makes yeah. energy, like wave energy. I mean, it really is like... It, Absorbs like, the sun, right? You could. You, there's all these ideas of putting mirrors on large portions of the ocean in order to reflect the sunlight, to lower the temperature. I mean... The dropping of we had uh, the company that drops the kelp uh, after absorbing all that carbon puts it at the bottom of the ocean. So the ocean is like a platform, you know, and the platform, you know, could deteriorate like a bridge does or a highway system, or it could really help move things around in a positive way. And that's why sail plan one of our investments is trying to make those ships a little more um, uh, efficient, less efficient, less toxic. That's efficient awesome. in terms of fuel use and carbon emissions and they're doing it for ports too and yeah i mean it's a like it this is a really really interesting conversation i love the idea the platform is the perfect word yeah perfect word. Right. let's protect the platform let's evolve the platform yeah here's brian halligan well done molly can't wait for this one brian halligan is the former co-founder of hubspot current founder of the climate tech investment fund propeller welcome to this week in climate startups thanks for having me and congrats on the $100 million uh, raise for Propeller. And tell us, okay, tell us about the thesis. I've been super interested into these like very specific thesis-driven funds. We talked to a fund that's just doing wildfire tech. You're specifically focused on this category that's being called blue tech, right? Oceani- oceanographic, oceanographic investments. Yeah, we're not going to call it, we're not going to call it that again. Ocean stuff. Ocean stuff. We're doing ocean stuff. Well, I was, uh, I'll tell you the whole story. I was, I was humming along nicely at HubSpot running that as the CEO and it's going pretty well. And then I had a, I had a really bad snowmobile accident, Molly, and very nearly killed myself on a snowmobile. And I had a lot of time to think in the long period of time in the hospital and long period of time in a wheelchair. And I've had a climate itch and wanted it in climate. And um, I decided I wasn't getting back to being CEO. There was a wonderful woman who took over from me when I was gone. She's doing great. So she's CEO now. And and I had some time and energy. And I'm like, I want to get into climate. And I started doing some research on it. And the funny thing about the research, I met with a lot of founders and venture capitalists that I met with uh, a lot of professors. And the more people knew about the climate change, the more depressed and pessimistic they were about it until I visited Woods Hole Oceanographic. And the oceanographers are pretty darn optimistic about climate change. The ocean's gotten us out of some big climate pickles before, and it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. 
And so that's how I sort of headed down the ocean path. It's, uh, it was around that optimism I felt around climate change from the ocean people. Okay, so tell me more about the optimism before we get into the nuts and bolts. The, is it the sense that the ocean is such a massive resource and carbon sink? Like, where did that, where does that optimism come from? The, the size of it, for sure, it's 71% of the surface of uh, the Earth. It's 90% of the biomass. It's already uh, producing half our oxygen, consuming half the carbon dioxide that's getting spit out. It's doing a lot of the heavy lifting today. And I think it's the only thing of scale that can do more. And oceanographers can believe if you are very, very careful with the ocean, it can solve the crisis. And the, and the careful part is very, very important. But uh Oceanographers are optimistic about uh, the ocean doing a lot more around absorbing uh, more carbon dioxide and, and really helping us out of a jam here. And then so in terms of raising the fund, you partnered with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, right? Yes. So we ended up with a deep partnership with Woods Hole where part of the funding goes into their highest potential laboratories uh, where we think there's uh, big, big opportunities to solve climate problems. And we'll get a, you know, a first right of refusal on that technology. And then they're an LP in the fund. So it's a deep, deep partnership. I think it'll help a lot as we're looking at deals. We'll have lots of experts to call on. Our portfolio companies will be able to leverage their facilities. The, the partnership's actually already really paying off. Really happy with it. So it's kind of like a corporate VC? But not like really. Not, yeah. not really. No, I don't, I don't think of it as that. They don't think of it as that. Like we can do a business with um, companies coming out of Woods Hole or anyone else. In fact, there's a company we just funded out of Caltech. That's a company we're looking at USC. We funded a company out of MIT. So it's not sort of captive to Woods Hole. But right. I think we'd like to do some great stuff with Woods Hole. We think there's amazing technology coming out of there. So um, tell me about... Let's go back to the snowmobile accident for a minute and the path from founder to investor what made you decide it sounds like you know you could have founded another company maybe and and what was the kind of thinking behind like no investing is the best way forward here to tackle this problem i wasn't sure i wanted to invest by any means um no i uh the thing about HubSpot is we always say that we want to build a company that our grandkids will be proud of. And that's sort of my mantra that I beat into people's head and people roll their eyes at me when I say I'm sure at this point I've said it so many times. And I think we're on our way. I mean, we're a lot of people say we're the best place to work in the United States. And we have a couple hundred thousand customers and millions of users, and they tend to be quite happy. And so I feel like we're having a relatively positive impact on the people we touch. And I want to keep that going. And as I was thinking about my body of work in my life and like, well, when I'm older and I look back at my life, what am I proud of? What have I left? I thought I wanted to get into climate. It's, it's a much, you know, it's a big impact area. Obviously, it's a big lever where now it's like, where could I find the biggest lever in climate? And as I looked at it, I was like, I could start a company. I could go join someone's companies. I could sit on boards. There's all kinds of stuff I could do. But I was drawn to the ocean. There was a gap there. No one was really building sort of an independent venture fund in the ocean. It felt like the answer could be there and that somebody needed to do it. And if it's not me, then who? You might as well uh, give it a go. And it felt like investing seemed like the right way to go. There's a whole series of technologies that you can invest in in the ocean that are quite interesting. And so uh, I thought I'd give that a go. And so I, 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 when I was a small child, I didn't want to grow up and be an ocean climate investor. It's sort of, I went on a journey to find it and it, it sort of found me. 
were, I mean, did you grow up around the ocean? Was it literally like, you, I mean, because it sounds like it was a very intentional path to try to find the exact right place to land and have impact. Um, do you also have like an affinity for the ocean? I will tell you a secret. I haven't told this to anyone on the podcast, on any other podcasts or anything. I get seasick. <laughs> Amazing. I kind of avoid boats. Uh, you know, people invite me to go sailing and scuba diving and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm kind of indoorsy. I'm all set on that. Yeah, I like to swim in the ocean. I take a little boat ride here and there. But if you said, hey, let's go on a cruise around the, across the Atlantic. I'm good on that. The reason I'm doing the ocean is I think the answer could be in the ocean and that's where the biggest lever is. And so it's a very practical reason. It's not, I, love I think most people just assume I'm, I'm sort of a sailor or a scuba diver. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I wondered, I thought like, oh, for sure. You've got some like backstory that's like, oh, a windswept house no, in Maine and the, no, you know, no, no, I have a house in Cape Cod, but I just like looking at the ocean from a distance. <laughs> Amazing. I kind of, I really, I kind of love that. All right. Well, let's um let's talk about the the investment part of it. It sure. is a tiny fraction, right, of of VC dollars in climate tech are going to blue tech or ocean related tech. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's not other than the part where it's like this huge resource that we and we know more about space than we do about the ocean. There's that. <laughs> and that part of the reason why I'm doing it is it is a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of dollars going into it. Um, I mean, I, th I, I think it's one of the, it's sort of like HubSpot. I remember when we first started HubSpot, we were pitching it to investors. We, I can't tell you how many no's we got across Series A through E. Like, we had a heck of a time raising every round. Everyone thought we were crazy going up small, medium business. It'll never work. You're going to compete with Salesforce.com. Good luck. Like, we, we just got no after no after no. But 10 years later, people are like, you know, that was a really obvious idea, that HubSpot thing. Why didn't I think of that idea? I think it's going to be one of those things that 10 years from now, people are like, why didn't I think of that? That's a really obvious idea. Yeah. And I think people have been hesitant to do it. The ocean's a harsh environment to work in. And so you have to have your act together and you have to have a hardened technology if you want to put it in the ocean. I think that's challenging to people. I don't think there's a lot of know-how about it. Um, so I think people have hesitated to do it. I think you're going to see more and more. I think there'll be a lot of ocean funds after propeller. I think a lot of people will do it. I'm noticing from all the other climate tech funds, they keep throwing us ocean deals to look at. So people are seeing ocean deals as a, there's a lot of activity in the ocean. The startup community in the ocean is, it's, it's booming and we, there's a massive amount of deal flow we're seeing. And we're seeing a lot from other investors and just from entrepreneurs in general. So I, th I think we'll be the first of many. Yeah. Um, what kinds of deals are you seeing? Can you talk a little bit about the types of technology that people are trying to deploy? Sure. The thing about the ocean that, that's that, that, that about investing in the ocean that's cool and, and also hard. Like I come from the software as a service industry and you think about you're an investor in software as a service, everything kind of rhymes. The business models rhyme, the go-to-market right. rhymes, the people are the same moving back around between the companies. The ocean has like, we counted 13 different kind of tech verticals where there's some sort of disruption going on in the verticals. And there's three in particular that we like. We like the idea of carbon sequestration. How do you get more of that carbon dioxide in the air sequestered at the very bottom of the ocean? There's a lot of companies and technologies around that would like to build the picks and shovels to enable that industry to happen. 
ocean organic. So everything from aquaculture to new types of creating um, seafood in a lab, for example, food for fish, the fish populations are crashing. The, the food that fish eat is really crashing. So stuff around that. Uh, kelp in products that come out of kelp, you eat the animals and humans, mushrooms, things like that. Lots and lots of interesting stuff there. And then just ocean industrials, everything from desalination uh, plants to, you know, underwater energy, wave energy, uh, tide energy, things like that. So lots of stuff. And they're, they're, they're all really different technologies and different business models, which makes it really challenging and interesting. How do you even tackle that? Like, what kind of team have you put together for? research and diligence you know yeah. what's your learning process been like well, i have a very oceany team um <laughs> they like boats they like them um, they like boats <laughs> they're all scuba divers and sailors and all that kind of stuff by, by the way now that i'm doing this everyone invites me to go sailing and it's like i'm, I'm good i'm good i'm good yeah i made but, a i made an investment that involves a board meeting on a boat and i'm like you know i'm i don't i'm good I mean, yeah okay yeah i'm, I'll I'm with example. you on that one I highly recommend a medication called bonine related to drama. Makes, makes, makes it tired. No, bonine doesn't make you tired. Oh, bonine doesn't make you tired. Yes. It's a, like a super seat because I love whale watching, but Ooh. I get super seasick and bonine is the jam. All right. I got yes, it. I'm doing drama Yeah, no, that just puts you right to sleep. Totally. Yeah. I'll give you an example of one of the partners. It's a woman named Julie Pullen. She's an oceanography professor, climatologist. And she's terrific, a deep domain expertise, an expert on the ocean. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia around oceanography. And we poached her out of a startup that was doing a bunch of climate research. So she's sort of a ocean researcher, oceanographer, climatologist, but also very startup-y. She was doing a bunch of angel investments. So that's the type of person we have on our team. You know, the deep, deep, deep domain expertise. And then we have access to all the terrific scientists at Hui who can help us out on the due diligence as well. Hey, everybody. It's time for a special interview with an old friend of mine, Rick Robinson. He is the GM of Age Tech Collaborative, which is brought to you by our friends at AARP. So how does the collaborative work? How do you help companies and investors kind of access these companies and these markets? So essentially what we do is we look for companies, we incubate them, we invest in them, and then we bring them into this new environment we call the Age Tech Collaborative Community. So yes, we have pitch competitions that we run throughout the year, themed, and some of them are open mic style. Mm. And it's a way for us to source and find great early stage companies, usually pre-series A. Mm. We invite some of them into our accelerator program, which is extremely high touch, eight weeks, four times a year, where we bring in aging experts. We help get them best prepared to deliver their product or service to the market. And as I mentioned, we often invest in these companies, and then they graduate into the HTEC Collaborative community, which is an online platform that makes up an ecosystem that we're developing that includes, of course, the startups, investors, testbed organizations, enterprises, and business services, all in this one online environment hmm. where they can support and draw from one another. Great. So there's an online community people can go yep. visit. They can go visit that at agetechcollaborative.org slash twist, agetechcollaborative.org slash twist. And so if you want to build in that market, if you want to sell into that market, if you want to invest in that market, this is a great way for you to partner with AARP, correct? Absolutely. Yep. Can you talk about investments that you've made so far? How long have you been deploying? Uh, just for a couple months, I can talk at a high level about a few of them. 
we had we had an interesting process. We're seeing a lot come in, and we decided to run something we call an Ocean MBA, which is a week long class we run in partnership with MIT. That's a bunch of the curriculum you get with an MBA with a very salty, oceany spin to it. And I teach a bunch of it. The guy who runs uh, Energy Ventures at MIT teaches a bunch. So we brought a bunch of the professors in to teach it. It was awesome. We had 24 entrepreneurs come in. They learned a lot. We learned even more. We had breakfast, lunch, and dinners with these entrepreneurs while they're learning. We got to know their chance or go to markets. Pretty much everything about their businesses. They pitched us at the end. And then we funded four of those companies. I can tell you about a couple of them that I like. Yeah. Uh, there's Please. one in particular I like that there's uh, two women from the desalination industry, uh, which is a, unfortunately going to be a very fast growing industry to keep up with the uh, freshwater demands of the earth. And it turns out the ocean is full of just dissolved lithium and dissolved magnesium and dissolved very important metals. And mm-hmm. all these are just washing through these desalination plants. So they've created a specialized filter that will effectively turn every desalination plant into a lithium mine. That's kind of one that I like a lot. There's another gentleman, an MIT professor is leaving his job and he's starting an MRV company. And being able to sell carbon credits in the ocean, whether that's a mangrove project or a giant kelp farm or whatever the project might be that you're running in the ocean. Can I wait, can I interrupt you for a second? What's MRV? Oh, I forget what it stands for, but it's monitoring and verifying the information in the ocean Mm -hmm. uh, of what's going on. And people are doing this on land, like there's a terrific company called Pachama that uses satellites that will look at tree stands and see, okay, how much carbon dioxide are really being absorbed by the trees. So he wants to build a monitoring and verification system for the ocean. So let's say you're building a kelp farm or you're building a mangrove project and you're selling carbon credits off it. Are you really sinking that carbon dioxide to the bottom of the ocean? Are you doing something weird to the fish? Are you throwing the pH balance off of the ocean? He wants to create kind of the moodies for the ocean to do that kind of thing. So those are the types of companies that we're looking at investing in early stage stuff. And so far, so good. No shortage of opportunities. I think this is going to be a winner. How early are you looking? Super early. These both those companies are, are founding teams, you know, beyond the card table, but we're we're really first money in and we're putting between a half a million, million and a half to work on both of them. Okay. And is that your kind of standard check size? Yes. And so we're trying to and we're trying to yeah, seed, pre-seed. Mm-hmm. We're doing another one that's very interesting that's in the shipping space, the shipping industry, all those Amazon packages going back and forth from uh, uh, China. That's about 3% of the carbon dioxide spewed into the air, but it's a lot. And that industry is quite serious about getting the, the carbon dioxide levels down. And there's a couple of ways to do it. One is to switch the whole darn industry to ammonia, which is a Big expensive project. There's a professor at Caltech who's got a very interesting project where he takes the output of the smokestack on one of these ships and he runs it through a limestone process, limestone process, and turns that carbon dioxide into an inert material that you can drop right into the ocean. And so that's the third one we're doing, and we're syndicating with a few other venture capitalists on that. So that's a larger deal. Look, people want to do ocean stuff. We're seeing lots of interest in syndication. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I know you must have read Eat Like a Fish, yes. which is I found myself on a podcast sometime earlier this year saying almost the exact words you just did about how in 10 years it was the obvious podcast. And I was like, yeah, in 10 years, it's going to be obvious to everyone that this was this like massive resource. But as you say, it's sort of hard to build in like when what is your thesis around 
frontier tech or hardware or, you know, it sounds like some of it is picks and shovels, but some of it's going to be, you know, weather hardened wave generation machines, right? Yeah, like some of the stuff I described, like the that first company um, that's turning the um, desalination plants into lithium. That's a filter company. That's not. Right. It, it's hardware and it's software, but it's not. Doesn't have to like sit in the ocean, but it's got to be super sturdy. That's got to be a very well engineered product. The second one, the sensor companies, those are going right into the ocean. So those sensors, they're very small, but they have to be super super rugged. Most it's like I think of the iPhone. Yes, it's a piece of hardware, but it's really a piece of hardware that wraps software. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what that is, but it has to be super rugged. The third one, the the ocean uh, liner company, that's actually going to sit on the Maersk ship, let's say, so it doesn't have to be as rugged. But it's a piece of hardware. It's engineered and software that's together. So definitely some engineering, some hardware involved, as well as some software in these companies. I definitely want to talk to your. Uh... Moody's company, by the way. Okay. We'll cool. connect after. <laughs> cool. He's a great guy. And then tell me a little bit more about the entrepreneur in residence program and this this idea of sort of also incubating this space because there's a lot of interest, but maybe there are entrepreneurs who want to do this and don't know how to get started. Yeah. So uh, we've got two entrepreneurs in residence right now. They happen to be both former HubSpotters. So I would never take anyone from HubSpot, but they have both left and they're both very oceany. One of them. I'll tell you a story. One of them's named Kevin, Kevin Walsh. He ran AI for HubSpot for the last eight years. Terrific. And I bumped into him on the sidewalk in Boston. I'm like, hey, what do you, I heard you left HubSpot. What are you doing? He's like, I'm about to sail across the Pacific. Well, I got an idea for you. Why don't you, when you're done sailing across the Pacific, come hang out with us. And so he's starting an ocean company and another woman who, who used to work at HubSpot. And then we have about four or five other ones that are going to come in and work on stuff. And some of them have ideas that we'll work on inside of uh, Propeller. Um, others will match with the team inside of Woods Hole Oceanographic. So there's a bunch of labs inside of Woods Hole Oceanographic doing really interesting stuff. For the most part, those scientists are really interested in their technology getting out into the wild. But they didn't grow up wanting to be entrepreneurs, per se. They grew up wanting to be scientists. So we'll team them with a scientific team. We'll pull that technology out, create a company that scientists will remain our advisor, and they'll become CEO of that company. So that's a model I think we'll see a lot of. As part of the ocean thesis, by the way, I love that you're calling people oceany. Like it's, <laughs> there's two kinds of people in the world, oceany and not oceany. Um, as part of the thesis, have you identified specific threats like are there specific problems you're trying to address or is it or are you sort of more generalist in terms of like it's ocean just work within that it's ocean it's big enough it's broad enough there's enough stuff going on in the ocean there's enough startups where we're sticking on the ocean we have core competitive advantage and i'm a big believer in building hubspot like we have some core competitive advantages you get to lean into your strengths versus run away and and go to other adjacent areas. So we've got core competitive advantage. Our team is super oceany. We have the partnership with Woods Hole. And so we want to be the world's first and best ocean investor is the idea. So yeah, we're very much focused on it. What do you think about this idea of, it seems like, like I was mentioning, I talked to a, a venture firm that's specifically doing fire tech. You're sort of specifically doing ocean solutions. Do you think that as we start to see more money in climate tech, that this kind of single thesis firm is the way to go or one of the many ways we could go? 
I think it's one of the many ways you could go. I heard about that biotech firm. I think it's super cool. I also just think you've got people like me that want to have a, an outsized impact. And so they kind of pick a lane and they go very deep on it. And I don't know who founded the biotech firm, but I thought that was an awesome idea. Really, really cool idea. Bill Clarico, um, yeah, also and, and, and I, former founder. Yeah. And the thing that I, I find interesting about climate tech, let's call it climate tech 2.0. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to work this time for a couple of reasons. One, just the obvious, the obvious urgency around the problem is up and the knowledge around the problem is up. But wow, are there a lot of people from the tech industry moving into this industry and a lot of money moving in? So just in the ocean, Eric Schmidt has a huge initiative going on inside of the ocean. Larry Page has a big initiative going on. Mark Benioff's got a big initiative going on. Uh, there's a bunch of us that are just doing ocean stuff. And I got to think that's going to matter. The money's going to matter. Some of the talent will matter. Some of the technology will matter to bring to bear on these big problems. So I count me as an optimist about all this stuff. Yeah. And then when it comes to this kind of big greenfield opportunity, what do you, one thing I've been asking in a lot of these interviews is like, what do you think you're seeing? There is a huge rush, obviously, in and money in Climate Tech 2.0. What do you think people are getting distracted by? Maybe wasting a little time on when there's a whole ocean to work within. I, that's sort of exactly what I was going to say. I think the ocean is the very obvious opportunity that people have missed. Uh, um, I mean, there's only so many trees you can plant. A lot of the surface of the land and earth, we're going to need to grow food to feed the 8 million plus people who are living on it. And so, like, there's a lot more space out there in the ocean, and there's a lot of green stuff growing in the ocean. There's a lot of photosynthesis going on. Like, it feels like a really obvious idea to me that people aren't doing it. I don't think anyone's getting anything wrong, but it's like, I think there'll be certain pockets where people will figure stuff out and things will get unlocked. Like, the software industry, there's certain pockets that got unlocked. SaaS got unlocked. Uh, yeah, the iPhone really unlocked the mobile industry. I think you're going to see a new generation of wearables that will unlock AR and VR. I think artificial intelligence is about to be unlocked. There'll be unlocks that will happen in climate. It's hard to predict what they are, but I think unlocks will come over time. And maybe it's some of the same unlocks. Maybe it's artificial intelligence applied to some of these problems that really unlocks it. Brian Halligan is the former co-founder of HubSpot and current founder of the Climate Tech Investment Fund, Propeller deploying $100 million into the ocean, whether you're on a boat or not. Brian, thanks a lot for the time. Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is the start of the week. We start the week on Sunday. We warm you up for the week. You know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's Monday. You're going to need to get the pod. You put the alerts on, hit the bell on YouTube. Be ready for anything. It's going to be chaos again. We're going to talk about it all on This Week in Startups this week. Five, six days a week, every week. Molly and I break it down for you. We will be here for you. We know (laughs) the knives are coming fast and furious. We're here to catch them all, but in like a good way. We're here for you. All right, see you tomorrow.